on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Today, Alicia wants to know about American shipping regulations. And to inform her, we, in, uh, we are joined by Colin Graybow, a policy analyst of the Herbert A. Stiefel uh, Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Colin, welcome. Thanks for having me. So a while ago, it's been some time now, James, um, James sent me an article. And quite frankly, I don't think the takeaway was supposed to be, what the heck is this Jones Act business? I think there was a bigger something behind it. But I came away with, oh, my goodness, I didn't know this existed. Does anyone else know this exists? So I had asked him kind of to help me explore the topic and kind of start with, what is the Jones Act? Um, and go from there. But my big question is, you know, what is it? Why is it? And why has it been this way for so long? Because I find myself thinking, well, man, with all these other things that we've done, you know, kind of more free market reduced regulations, it seems very strange that this is still a thing. So that's where I'm coming from. And I'm hoping you can help kind of educate us and have a, a wonderful conversation about why it is still a thing. I'll do my best. So those are some uh, great questions. And unfortunately, the, the, the answer is a, a little long, but I'll try to do my best to keep it uh, concise as possible. So the Jones Act is the term that people use uh, to refer to Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And Section 27 essentially says that if you want to move something between two points within the United States by water, it has to meet four conditions. And that's that the vessel that you use has to be U.S. owned and registered, just like you register your car in a state, well, your ship has to register in the United States as opposed to another country. It has to be at least 75% U.S. owned by American citizens. It has to be at least 75% uh, crewed by U.S. citizens with the remainder, I believe, uh, permanent residents and you know, green card holders, essentially. And it also has to be built in the United States. This is a very unusual requirement. If you want to fly on an airplane between two U.S. cities, it doesn't matter where that airplane was built. You know, if you wanted, you know, truck something, any other form of transportation, doesn't matter where that that uh, the, the form of transportation was was built or assembled. But for anything traveling by water, it takes it has to be built in the United States. Uh, that's a big problem because U.S. shipbuilders are very inefficient. It's not a big surprise. They've been protected from competition. That's normally what happens when you don't have to be competitive. You usually aren't competitive. Um, a U.S. built ship can be anywhere from four to five times more expensive than one built in another country. So for a tanker, for example, instead of paying, say, $35, $40 million, you're looking at $150 million for a ship. And, you know, a small container ship uh, in the United States overseas that would be, you know, again, $40 million. That's a $200 million ship here in the United States. Um, so this leads to your, one of your other questions. Why do we have this law? Why, why is this on the books? Surely there has to be some reason for this. Well, these, while the Jones Act was passed in 1920, it was only the latest version of similar laws called coastwise laws that date back to our country's founding, back to 1789. Now, some people may hear that and think, well, the founding fathers must have known what they were doing. That, that makes the, the law all right in my book. That What's really important here is that it was passed in a very different context than today. Back in 1789, at the country's founding, we had some of the best shipbuilders in the world. We had some of the best shipping in the world. And that's not a big surprise because 13 original colonies, they all had oceanfront, big supply of timber, 
Uh, everyone grew up around ships. Uh, it was a very uh, important part of the way of life. So we had some of the world's best shipbuilders, and they were very efficient. Some uh, maritime historians have even argued that these measures were essentially cost-free because we were already the best. So there's no downside really to using U.S.-built, U.S. Uh, crewed ships. But over time, technology changed. Uh, the environment, uh, the maritime environment changed. We went from some of the best to some of the worst, uh, unfortunately, where we are today. But our laws have not changed. Also, back then, there was more of a national security rationale. We had a very small Navy. Uh, our biggest enemies were the British. They had the world's biggest Navy. Uh, we wanted to make sure we had a lot of ships. And you could take a merchant ship, add some cannon to it, presto, kind of instant Navy. Well, that obviously, this is a very different world we're in today. We have the world's largest Navy. We don't do that where we add cannon to merchant the days ships. days of privateering um, are over. Exactly. They are They are over. Uh, but, but the laws that were relevant then are, are still on our books, more or less, uh, un, unchanged since then, or only very slight tweaks. Um, so, so that brings us to, to where we are today. Okay, so the, you said there are four criteria. It's owned, crewed, and built. What was the fourth? Uh, uh, crewed, owned, built, and registered flag. Ah, registered. Gotcha. And so, and those are and, the, and this is just for shipping from one U.S. port to another. Like exactly. Do... International shipping, you're, you're fine. You can use a you can use a mm -hmm. foreign ship. And so you mentioned that this doesn't cover airplanes. Are are any of those criteria? applicable to you know air transport or like overland trucking so do they require u.s crews or is is it basically this whole regulation is totally different for shipping with no real um similar regulation within the other transport industries so with uh, within other forms of transportation i know that airlines i believe they're also subject to a 75 percent uh u.s ownership law i know there were there was talk Back during, I think, the Bush administration of trying to uh, change that to reduce it. Uh, I don't know about crews, but they do have to be U.S. registered airplanes. Um, but again, you can use a uh, Airbus, a Bombardier, Embraer, whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. The building of the airplane has has uh, uh, no relevance. And thank goodness. And that's one reason why I think we have such a vibrant uh, passenger uh, air passenger service market uh, in this country, as opposed to our shipping, which is fairly irrelevant and little used. Well, and that kind of brings me to like, why is it still here? I know James is always always hammering concentrated benefits, diffuse costs. Like, I got that, but it has to cost consumers something. And has that been like quantified? What are we talking about? What's passed on to your average American that we're not realizing? Um, it, it, we're, we're subsidizing essentially like what what is that cost you're right this is a properly viewed as a subsidy but it's a very opaque one with uh costs and benefits that are are, are not very transparent where we're kind of uh, fumbling in the dark trying to figure out what those are uh unfortunately the u.s government it's been 20 years since they've tried to quantify the cost of the jones act uh, i think you know, I think fundamental to good public policy is having a sense of what the costs are and what the benefits are and weighing the trade-offs there. But unfortunately, we're in a situation where we can't really do that uh, because we only have you know, kind of the vaguest idea of, of what the costs are, as well as uh, you know, the, the supposed benefits. Um, but there have been some attempts. Uh, a couple of years ago, researchers from the OECD did a study about the Jones Act, and their calculation was that if the Jones Act was to be repealed, that the economic benefits would be something on the order. I think economic output would increase by up to $135 billion and increase in GDP was somewhere between, I think, 
16 and uh, $64 billion, something on that order. Uh, this was not annual. Uh, they didn't specify over what period of time these gains would be realized. But you know, this is this is an excess, I believe, of the projected gains, for example, from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Agreement that was pushed by the Obama administration. So, um, but we know the costs are very real, uh, and and you're right, they are uh, found dispersed throughout the U.S. economy. But unfortunately, we're in a place where the average American is is not aware of this law and and the costs that it imposes on them. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about this strange protectionism because it's not like there are multiple interests that are being protected each at the cost of each other here. So, for instance, the uh, uh, the requirement to um, to build it, uh, uh, that the ships uh, be built in America actually is bad for the crewmen because they uh, there aren't going to be as many opportunities because they have to use expensive ships. Uh, the decision to protect shipping, um, you know, uh, obviously it. It harms consumers, but it also harms uh, the pe uh, the industrial producers that that would be better served with a more efficient, um, uh, more efficient shipping. It's it's uh, you can't protect one industry without without costing some others, and in this case, it's sometimes contradictory even to the industries who are being protected. Absolutely, that's a great point. I think a lot of people hear about the the, the requirements of the Jones Act, and they think to themselves. So why don't the ship operators who have to buy these expensive ships, why don't they rebel against that and try to mm -hmm. at least change that provision? Because you're right, more expensive ships means fewer ships. Um, and uh, so, but the reason is because ultimately uh, who pays the cost of those ships? Well, you have very limited competition in the shipping industry. So they, they buy these expensive mm -hmm. ships and they pass those costs along to consumers. In fact, uh, a lot of these shipping companies find the U.S. built requirement to be an advantage because it serves as a, uh, a barrier to market entry. Mm. You know, if someone if, if ships were a lot cheaper, they would face a lot more competition. It'd be easier for people to enter that market and, and challenge them. Uh, so in, it has this perverse result where uh, it actually works to the benefit of, of the ship owners. And but you're right, it, it's a law that works at cross purposes in the sense that it wants to promote shipbuilding, so you have to use U.S. built ships. But we also want shipping. We want ships. The whole rationale is that in time mm -hmm. of war, we can we have these ships that we can use to transport goods for the military. But it, then it means fewer ships because they they are so expensive. So it's supposed to promote shipping and shipbuilding. Yet we've come to a place where we have very few ships. There are less than 100 Jones Act ships today. You know, as recently as 1980, there were 257, mm -hmm. and there are a grand total of anywhere from two to three ships built per year on average. And that's not per shipyard. That's the entire country. To put that number mm -hmm. in perspective, like a single shipyard in Korea can build 60 ships in a year. So U.S. is an absolute bit player. So. It's supposed to promote the the growth and development of both industries. In fact, we've seen both are are in a really sad state. So, with you know the drawbacks being you know apparent, are there positives to this in any way? I mean, obviously, the shipbuilders, the American shipbuilders, are benefiting because um, you know all the business has to go through them. But if they're only building a couple of ships, is it really worth it? Like, is there? a real benefit to having this? Or is it just history has been this way? Some people get some benefit and no one's throwing a fit to change it? Like, why Why hasn't this been amended or changed? Great question. Uh, you know, as far as what, what are the benefits? Uh, you're right. We barely build any uh, commercial ships in this country. What's really keeping the U.S. shipbuilding industry going is government contracts building for 
the Navy, for the Coast Guard, mm -hmm. et cetera. In fact, I believe uh, two years ago, or uh, earlier this year, there's a report released that said, I think in 2019, government contracts accounted for 78% of all shipbuilding industry revenue. Uh, so that's what's really keeping these guys afloat. In fact, you know, I would submit that, again, shielding them from competition has made them very uncompetitive. Being uncompetitive mm -hmm. is not good for your future prospects. I think that if we hadn't had these laws in place, I think Americans can compete. I think we're, we're very competitive, innovative people. And I think uh, without that captive domestic market, it would force them to raise their game. And I, I believe in them and what they can do. But so long as they have the current set of incentives, that's not going to happen. And then to the extent that the Jones Act provides ships that can be used for the military in time of war, um, I, I think a superior way to go about that would be direct subsidies. Go to the military and say, how many ships do you need? They say, we need X number of ships. Okay. Then hand out money and say, hey, guys, you take this money and in exchange in time of war, we can grab your ship. And therefore, we can have that cost-benefit analysis. And it can all be transparent. Mm. But transparency is not what the supporters of this law want. Now, you asked, you know, why is it still on the books? Uh, I, I think to understand just how perverse this is, let's go back two years ago when uh, a proposal was floated inside the Trump administration to exempt the shipments of liquefied natural gas from the Jones Act. Currently, uh, there are zero LNG carriers in the Jones Act fleet. So if you wanna send something in LNG from one part of the United States to another, you can't do it. There are no ships to transport it. And this has implications for Puerto Rico, for example, which uses LNG 100% foreign because they can't, it's impossible for them to get American because there are no ships to transport it. Same with Boston in the winter. We're about to go into the winter. Uh, temperatures drop, demand spikes for heating, and they don't have enough pipeline capacity. So they bring in foreign ships with LNG uh, uh, instead of American LNG. So the idea was, well, let's exempt it because we're not. there's no benefit here. This is 100% downside. And what happened is uh, the, Trump indicated that he was in favor of it. The next week, six senators went to his office and said, you better not touch the Jones Act. You better not do this. Mm -hmm. And they were both senators from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alaska. Alaska is a particularly bizarre case because you know, being a non-contiguous state, it is heavily dependent on maritime transport. This law, uh, you know, has a heavy impact on Alaska. And in fact, in 1984, there was a referendum passed by the people of Alaska mandating, they put it in a state law, it is the governor's responsibility to lobby for repeal of the Jones Act. And yet we have the congressional delegation going there, arguing in favor, or rather against this law, this, this waiver, which would have had no downside impact because this is a service the Jones Act industry does not offer and would have let Americans buy American products. This is, you know, mm -hmm. this is where we're at today. This is how crazy things are. Was there uh, a reason? Like, was that ever addressed? Like, this seems so counterintuitive. Why are you here? Why are you here? Exactly. Uh, so there was uh, actually... Uh, Trump's uh, former uh, chief economist in the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Casey Mulligan, he wrote a book last year called You're Hired about his time in the Trump administration. He, and the final chapter of the book is all about the Jones Act. And he talks about this effort and what happened. And uh, people claim that what happened is supporters of the Jones Act, such as Peter Navarro, essentially went to Congress and said, Trump wants to get rid of the Jones Act. And these senators, they didn't even really know what they were opposing. They just knew the Jones Act was on the line somehow. They were fuzzy on the details. And uh, Trump, I think, ultimately looked at this and said, well, if I waive the Jones Act, I'm going to make these people angry if, if I if, – uh, if and if I do – you know, but who's going who's gonna to shake my hand? Who's going to 
uh, say way to go, uh, that was less apparent because again, concentrated benefits disperse costs. So, you know, all the people that support the Jones Act, they view this law as, you know, existential. This is vital. This is ever this is the ball game for them. Whereas people hurt by the Jones Act, you know, the LNG LNG industry, it's a bothersome law. They don't like it. They would love to sell some LNG to Puerto Rico and New England, but you know, they have other other other, other uh, issues they have to, to to grapple with too. This isn't the whole ball game. What is your strategy for getting rid of it? <laughs> I think the the best way to to try to address this law is just to illustrate some of the absurdities. Um, the sad fact is most people are not aware of the law. In fact, there was an mm. episode of Jeopardy two three years ago. The category was Puerto Rico. The five hundred dollar question. The answer was the Jones Act. Nobody <laughs> knew the answer. These are mm -hmm. Jeopardy contestants, and nobody knew the Jones Act. So this is kind of what you're up against. But you know, for example, this winter again, you know, it's going to be cold in New England. And I think it makes sense to, to raise this issue and go, Americans should be able to buy American LNG. That's something they should be able to do. They shouldn't have to buy, especially right now, we have some of the, it's not just we have it, it's some of the cheapest. And they have to pay, you know, if, if, if it comes out that Europe is the cheapest place to source it, by all means, go there, get it. But, you know, America, they should at least have the ability to buy American LNG. Um, so things like that. I also think, you know, we need to illustrate the example of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has a 43% poverty rate. And there's a debate in Washington. How can we help Puerto Rico? Well, we can stop hurting them. That's something we, we can do. We should stop subjecting these people to some of the world's most expensive shipping rates. That's just not fair, especially for an island that has no voting representation in Congress. They can't vote for president, and we're subjecting mm -hmm. them to, to these laws. So trying to take tell, tell stories like that and show these examples, concrete examples, and make it less abstract and show real people that are really being hurt. Um, and and, and uh, I, I think people can get behind that once they, once they hear those stories. Oh, have you been able to rally many allies to your uh, to your side? So in Congress, uh, Senator Mike Lee has been a real champion of Jones Act uh, reform and repeal. He uh, introduced he's introduced uh, bills in the last two Congresses to repeal the law, uh, and also some other measures. I believe in 2019, for example, he introduced uh, a bill. I think he may have introduced it that basically said uh, in those situations. For example, with LNG, where you say, I'm willing to use an American ship. They're just none available. I mean, they're none to be had. In those situations, then you can be able to use a foreign one. If you want to send a product from one part of the United States to another, and you look around, there's just no American ships, then you can use a foreign one. Institute you know, a waiver system. Uh, so I think that would be a very sensible kind of re reform. Um, you know, and he's also addressed other maritime laws like the Passenger Vessel Services Act, which applies to cruise ships. Um, maybe you are familiar with uh, earlier this year, uh, Alaska almost lost its cruise season because all the cruise ships that go from Seattle up to Alaska are all foreign flagged. Mm -hmm. And to get around this, this law, you have to stop in, an, in a foreign port because if you make the voyage international, then it's not subject to the law. But it's purely domestic, you know, Seattle to Alaska, then it is. And there are zero ships. There's one ship in the entire world that's compliant with this law and operates in Hawaii. So they're looking at you know their whole uh, season being gone. And a waiver was passed uh, for this because Canada has their ports closed. And until Canada reopens, you can you can uh, use the, take advantage of this waiver. So we've seen some examples of of success uh, limited. And I think because again, I think people saw an absurd situation where they they said, wait, people can't 
getting our cruise ship to go to Alaska because Canada has its ports closed. That doesn't make any sense. So just take that same mentality and those examples and apply it elsewhere. And, you know, with LNG, with Puerto Rico, and there, there are numerous examples uh, in this country. So uh, that makes me curious. Um, are there other regulations in, in transportation or, you know, with um, shipping that are similarly kind of made, potentially at the time made sense benefiting um, the parties that they benefit, but are there other opportunities to make shipping, um, I don't know, just easier, you know, more efficient, uh, cost less, so consumers, because I don't think, I think many people see, like, especially now with the um, kind of backups at ports, you know, you hear news about, oh, Christmas shelves might be kind of bare. Um, are there other opportunities to make shipping more efficient just by reducing regulation, or is the Jones Act kind of the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to address? Are there many elephants in the room, or are there just one and then maybe mice in the corner or something? I think the Jones Act is the big one because, yeah, we're, we're at this moment where the, the deficiencies in our transportation system are on display. And, you know, I, I think that there's an opportunity here to try to promote um, uh, the use of coastal shipping to get to move things from point A to point B. Because what happens currently is ships come from overseas and they, they discharge in U.S. port and then it's on to trucks and rail to their ultimate destination. Where, you know, in Europe, for example, you have more of a hub and spoke model where these big ships arrive from Asia. They uh, offload a lot of their goods and they're put on smaller vessels that will go, you know, they'll go to Rotterdam, for example, then go on to smaller vessels and they'll go to Scandinavia or Spain and, and wherever to, towards their ultimate destination. But, you know, in the United States, if we if you want to send something from Boston to Houston on a ship, you can't do it. There are none. There, you know, I think every container ship in the Jones Act fleet, except for maybe one, operates purely going to Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, Guam. Basically, they only operate where you have no alternative because they're so ridiculously expensive. If anyone has an alternative, they'll use it. So we only use our ships where, and that's so backwards. That's such an indictment uh, because it should be the opposite. This is an efficient form of getting things from point A to point B. Um, also, there's something called the Foreign Dredge Act. Uh, to maintain your ports and waterways, you need to dredge them, uh, mm -hmm. both because sediment you know, builds up over time. And also ships keep getting bigger and deeper and you need to accommodate these big ships. Well, we, just like the Jones Act, if you want to dredge, the vessel has to be U.S. built, U.S. flagged, all the rest. Uh, this is a small market. We don't, our, our dredging fleet is pretty small. Uh, some of the best dredgers in the world are, you know, Dutch and Belgian uh, for understandable reasons right there. You know, the, these low countries have a history of fighting against the encroaching ocean. And we can't use them. These are NATO allies. We cannot use them. And uh, there have been studies suggesting that they could do these kind of jobs for one third of the price. Well, guys, we don't promote our maritime industry by making it very expensive to maintain our ports and waterways. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, I mean, the sad fat reality, I think, is when you look at the U.S. maritime industry, it's almost hard to point at the successes. You just see policy failure all over the place and protectionism all over the place. Um, so a lot of good news here is there's a lot of opportunities uh, to, mm -hmm. for improvement. Well, when you say that, like, does that mean, you know, we open up shipping between ports and we see an increase in business in some of these locations that aren't traditional ports. You know, you talk about you could send natural gas to Boston. Is there more opportunity for coastal cities to have a port system where they're receiving goods from other smaller ports rather than going overland by, you know, truck or rail? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, when people say, what's the cost of the Jones Act? They like to think, okay, the cost of the Jones Act is I pay X percentage more for, you know, a product at a store. Uh, yes. 
But let's also think, you know, it's, it's very much a study in opportunity cost. It's what does the United States look like with the Jones Act versus what does it look like without the Jones Act? And I would submit uh, that absent the Jones Act, we would see much more coastal shipping. Uh, I believe right now, coastal shipping accounts for something like 2% of all cargo moved. Uh, if you add in barges, you know, you're up to like maybe 8%, something like that. And so I just think, I, I think given the geographic uh, disposition of the United States, East Coast, West Coast, Gulf Coast, non-contiguous states and territories, the Great Lakes. Mm. Uh, there are real uh, opportunities here to make uh, better use, more efficient use of, of our geography, of our waters to transport goods and make our overall transportation system more efficient. Well, let's talk about the Great Lakes. Would we have stronger transportation hubs uh, um, in our major cities on the coast like uh, Detroit, Green Bay, Chicago, if this act was changed? I'd like to think so. Uh, what's interesting when it comes to the Great Lakes is to compare, uh, there's kind of a natural experiment here because the Great Lakes are also shared by Canada. And mm -hmm. Canada has a somewhat different uh, regulatory regime. Now that you do have to use Canadian flagged ships when you move things within Canada, but um, around 10 years ago or so, the Canadian government um, they, they used to impose a 25% tariff on foreign-built vessels, foreign-built ships. And then they realized, well, we don't really build ships. Uh, we're really not protecting much. Uh, and they repealed this 25% tariff. Well, what happened? Canadian shipping companies, they've all gone out and bought new ships. There have been a huge influx of new ships. And new ships are more efficient ships. They're both better for the environment. And then they have lower costs. You know, that translates to, to, to consumers. And I think, you know, um, I would have to study Canada more to, you know, compare how vibrant their shipping is versus the United States. But one thing we know for sure is they have better ships. We haven't built a new ship for our Great Lakes slate since 1983. Okay, there's one under construction right now. It's supposed to be finished next year. That will be the first new one in you know close to 40 years. It's crazy. So uh, one thing I know for sure, I'm, I'm fairly confident we would, we, at the very least, we'd have a better fleet and presumably a more efficient fleet, and presumably that would that would translate to more opportunities for transportation on our, our Great Lakes. That's really cool. You did say you know possibly event better environmentally. I know. Um, trucking presents a lot of opportunities because there's the big movement in, you know, electrified vehicles, electrification. But if there's an increase in total shipping and total transportation on the waterways, do you think that because we're going to be bringing in newer ships, that that is a net benefit to the environment? Or is there a potential harm that some older ships are going to be used, maybe brought in from other countries, and that that move to more water transport could be a negative, you know, when so many people are concerned about global warming and, and impacts of, um, you know, burning fuel. Using old ships is a status quo. That's what we're dealing with now. Because when you have an environment where it's very expensive to buy new ships, well, people don't do it. They delay that as long as possible. Um, so overseas, internationally, a ship, the typical useful life is somewhere between 20 to 25 years. And the Jones Act world, a ship, uh, the last 10 ships that have been removed from service had an average age of 40. Uh, so we have we have old ships for understandable reasons, um, and they're not as efficient. So I absolutely think there would be efficiency gains, both because, A, the vessels that we use would be newer and, and more efficient. They would pollute less. They would consume less fuel. 
And then also, I think there's a real opportunity to move uh, some some freight from land-based forms of transportation, like trucking, like rail, and put that on, on ships. Ships, from a, a carbon perspective, they're a little bit better than rail, and they are a lot better than trucks. Oh, uh, so that that would that would absolutely be an environmental win. In fact, at Cato, we put out a study two years ago where uh, we had an economist. Uh, from Texas Tech University quantified some of these environmental costs, and he calculated that uh, you know, the savings, just from a purely environmental perspective, would be somewhere from the low hundreds of millions of dollars up to you know over a billion dollars per year that we could save and, and avoided environmental costs. That's really interesting. And actually, you talk about the work that the Cato Institute has done, and I have to say, after I first had my what the heck Jones Act conversation with James, he sent me a link to the work um, that's available online um, by the Cato Institute. And this is a good place to plug that work. Um, is that ongoing there? I see, I know there's a website on the Jones Act. Is there content being added? Is it kind of like a static thing where we've set our piece and here it is? What work are you currently doing at the Institute to kind of educate people on, on the Jones Act and, and why it should be changed? Well, you're right. We do have a dedicated web page devoted to the Jones Act. So anybody that wants to learn more about this issue can visit it at cato.org slash Jones Act. Um, and yes, we are still adding new content. This project has been going on for a few years. Uh, and what's interesting is, you know, when you first run across this law, you think, okay, you know, goods have to ship by water, have to be U.S. built, U.S. flag, U.S. crude, uh, and, and U.S. owned, simple, that's pretty straightforward. And you really, you go down the rabbit hole and you discover just how bizarre it is and all the distortions and all these weird effects. Uh, you know, kind of on my to-do list is to actually dig in, for example, on the Great Lakes. I don't think there's been a lot of work on what, you know, people associate the Jones Act with, you know, Hawaii and Puerto Rico, but it affects everybody. Uh, and there are distortions all over the place. And so, uh, yeah, usually at least once a month, we add, there's new material being added, new things being written, uh, covering new ground, and there's still lots more to do. How optimistic are you on this issue? It, the, the law has been in place for a long time. And so, of course, th that's fairly daunting. Um, but I think we're getting to a place where the costs are so outrageous where you know again with for example the lng thing where you know americans can't buy american products that's absurd and it's not just lng there's a whole range of goods you know like propane we're the world's largest export of propane hawaii can't buy it so they get it from west africa because the ships again don't exist to transport it um and the, the costs and benefits are just becoming increasingly out of whack and i think kind of like canada maybe get to a place where you say what are we protecting this fleet is so small. The shipping industry is so small. Uh, you know, I mentioned two or three ships built per year. This decade, it's going to drop to more like one per year. Um, so it's just the outlook is bleak. And I would like to think at some point, some kind of sanity will prevail. Maybe that doesn't mean the whole law gets repealed. But again, some common sense reforms, like let's stop protecting things that don't exist, like the transport of LNG. Or um, you know, uh, some of the the, sh the shipbuilding is becoming an increasingly dubious proposition, where the industry consists of you know one ship per year being built. Uh, I'm hoping that that'll prompt uh, some saner thinking here in Washington. All right, Colin, thank you very much uh, for your time, and thank you for helping us uh, understand what's within the Overton window. Well, thank you. It's been it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and thanks. Um, I I often have these conversations with James and. I am far, far outside of the policy world. So sometimes um, 
some of the things he sends me, like, well, what do you think about this? Like, well, I've never thought about that. And this was just one that we probably started talking about it maybe almost like a year ago. It's been a while. And it was just something that's so caught my attention because it seems so like if even I understand why this is really weird it seems like a no-brainer for so many other people but the fact that like still exists it's like wait a second if you know if I can say well certainly this is probably impacting x y and z just by quickly you know just mental acrobatics doesn't take a whole lot to get there why aren't the people you know who this is you know their their life you know they're in politics they're in policy they're in trade why haven't they been like, yeah, this is really dumb. We should change this. It just seems so strange to me. So I really appreciate you coming and talking about it because um, it's been, it's been something I'm curious about. And I, I explained to my friends, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do this podcast with James. It's going to be on the Jones Act. And I swear, like the eyes glaze over, like they, they don't know, they don't care to know, but it's like, just spend 30 seconds. Just think about this. Come with me on this journey. It's strange. So I really do appreciate you coming and, and, and sharing. Well, again, thank you. And that's certainly been my own experience with this law. Uh, again, the more you delve into it, the stranger and more interesting it gets. And and here I am today, uh, <laughs> years later after I first delved into it. No. Well, so I guess the other question that we don't, don't get asked in the 30 minutes is the drones actually repealed. What do you do with your time? What's what's filling it up? Well, after the Jones Act gets repealed. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, there's also so we, you know, the Jones Act is you can think of it in many ways is a buy American law, a mandating you have to use this American product. And uh, the Jones Act is one of the most egregious examples of this. But you find these all over the place. Uh, actually, last week I wrote a blog post about here in Washington D.C. Our metro system, the the cars, uh, they've had to pull 60% of them from service because they found out that they were defective. Uh, they had a wheel misalignment or or something like this. And uh, well, these rail cars were also subject to buy American laws. They bought them from Kawasaki, but they were all assembled in Nebraska because they had to be U.S. assembled with at least 60% U.S. components. So they paid, you know, uh, according to one estimate, well over $400 million, uh, more than would otherwise be the case. And so we're overpaying for defective stuff. Uh, well, there's a lot of talk in this country about our infrastructure uh, and how we need to improve it. And I think, okay, well, if we want to do that, how about we stop paying so much for, for, for the things that we need? We want to improve our roads and rail and our bridges. So in our bridges, you, know, you have to use the American steel and things like this. And superficially, that sounds great. What's wrong with using American stuff? You know, that's very uh, appealing, I think, to a lot of people. But when you really delve into it, you realize all the downsides and how harmful these kind of laws are. Unfortunately, there are plenty of them, so lots of work to do. <laughs> so you're going to be employed well into the future. That's good to hear. I, unfortunately, I, I'm <laughs> trying to put myself out of a job, but I, I unfortunately, I think I have excellent job security. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.